Hey, welcome to Golf Underground ESPN Radio. We are back in studio. Sully Wardo. It's still the holiday season. It sure is. I've been wanting this guest for a long time, so I'm super glad we were able to get him. I know. He's, he's Kansas City golf royalty, for crying hey, out loud. I think this is the last guy that we have not gotten from Kansas City. We've gotten some great guys, great guests, and it's been... Uh, been a great year, Sully. It has. It has. Right. You know what? This is we're completing our first year together okay. in the golf underground. You're gonna get emotional on me. Well, uh, you know, it's this time of year. Uh, you know what makes me emotional? We, we come up into this week, and um, there's always uh, some uh, documentary about those who died in the in, in that year, right? 2019. Mm-hmm. Who died, mm-hmm. right? You and I, we we brought our friendship to life. I mean, it's it's um, it's a bromance, you know. I know, but the one thing about our friendship that if we're going to hang out anymore is we're going to have to fix that flip at the bottom of your golf swing. I mean, you're turning six irons into nine irons, and I know your scoring average needs to get better. I know, but you know what? Listen, if, if there were two good golfers who were hosting this program, it would be, it'd be boring, right? Because all you would do is you'd nerd out about your fitness and your golf swing and your, your chipping and putting. It's not about that. My it's about mi- life, Wardo. My mission today is to get our guests to figure help you figure out how to compress it down low and figure out how to trap the golf ball. All right. Because he's one I'm... of the best wedge players I've ever seen. And, and maybe he won't judge me like you judge me as a double-digit <laughs> handicap. No, you're not a du- double-digit. You're down to a 9.6. Well, that's my index. But you know what? <laughs> if you they jack that up, it goes to about 11. <laughs> if I'm playing a $10 Nassau, it goes up to a 13. See, so... I've got my way. So, hey, we got a great program today. We have Tom Pernice Jr. from Kansas City. Wait, you came in from California, right? Yeah, I live in Southern California now. You live in Southern California. So, so uh, you're born and raised there? Born and raised here in Kansas City, yes. And so, then I went to school at UCLA and uh, pretty much stayed there after that and uh, been in Southern California for almost 23 years now, Temecula, Marietta area. That's a beautiful yeah. area. That's so, nice. So you yeah. just came back to see family? Yeah, here for three or four days and... Uh, uh, yeah, it's nice to always come back and spend some time with the family and, uh, uh, you know, your roots are here and come have some Gates barbecue. I've already been there a couple of days, twice already for lunch. So that's why you have to go to the gym, right? That's my favorite, so, <laughs> you know, you got to work out so you can enjoy some food. Have they not introduced you to Q39 yet, or are you just still the Gates Gates lil? I'm a Gates beef and a half guy. Now, I've been to Q39, obviously, their burn-ins and their, and their ribs are pretty special, so I've been there. But I'm just kind of that uh, Gates barbecue, old-school beef and a half Kind of a guy. He knows what he likes. <laughs> I like it. Don't you, you try to add the fancy Q39. That even no, sounds I, fancy. I tried Q39 the other day. It was great. It I've grown good. up loving Gates, so Gates will always still be in my top three. What about is Joe's your favorite? Uh, Joe's is the good. The Z-Man? The Z-Man's pretty darn good. Maybe we should get him to sponsor the radio program. Huh? If you have a big night tonight, Silly, you're going to be craving a Z-Man on uh, Christmas Eve. I'll probably head down the town topic with you later. <laughs> 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 that's when you know it's either Town Topic or Taco Bell. That's that's how you know you had a great. <laughs> All right. Speaking All right. of gym, that's why we need the gym. Exactly. All right, Tom, <laughs> talk us through. Thanks for the time again, and uh, talk us through how you got into the game of golf at such a, an early age and how you learned. Um, my father was a good player. Um, he didn't start playing golf till he went into the army at like nineteen or twenty, and just kind of got in, engulfed with it. And his whole family, they were all a bunch of, uh, I think there's four or five brothers, and they were all barbers and stuff. And when he came back from the war, I mean, he was just intrigued. But he'd go and hit balls for two or three hours before he'd go to work. And then when they get off work, they'd, he'd go and play and practice. And he got to where he was like a two or three handicap. So, um, you know, my two brothers and I, we all grew up playing baseball, basketball. But then 
about five years old or so I started, he took me to the golf course and I loved it and hung out with him and uh, just kind of loved it and, you know, played the other sports till I was about 10 and be in the summer and I'm sitting there at batting practice at baseball and I'm thinking, this is boring, it's hot, I want to be at the golf course. So I, I kind of quit playing baseball in the summer and uh, took up golf and just kind of loved it. Where did you play when you were here? It's no longer there. We're out east of town, a course called Crackerneck. It's out there yeah. off of uh, 470. It's not too far from where Lakewood is now. Um, but it was a uh, small, old school, not not very great, just uh, very affordable country club. And a bunch of us all grew up there, and there's some good players that came out of there. Really? Yeah. So what made you better growing up, playing into clearly grade school, high school? How did you get better, or what what gave you the tools to get recruited by a school like UCLA? You know, I just, I don't know, I think I practiced a lot, and I just, you know, in in the summertime, I'd get to the course at 8 in the morning, and, you know, my brothers, they'd go on the swim team, and they'd hang out the pool, and I'd be dropped off at 8, and I'd just play golf till dark every night, and, you know, Kansas City Junior Golf was a big program in the day, and every Monday you got to go play another nice club mm-hmm. around the, the city. And that was something that I always looked forward to and practiced and worked towards and, you know, out there east of town and got to come play Mission Hills or Kansas City Country Club or Milburn or, you know, all these nice clubs in Oakwoods. And uh, that kind of always drove me a little bit. And then we had a good pro there at our club and uh, a lot of young kids. So uh, there was a lot of us always playing. And I think just, you know, basically hard work and uh, spent a lot of time with my dad and, you know, just, I don't know, really just kind of developed and had some success and kind of dedicated, my, dedicated myself to, to playing golf. So what? so what were the biggest lessons from Dad, right? Because the, the word on the street is that you used to get up bright and early before school, hit balls. Was it that work ethic that he instilled in you? Is that what so. he did? I think he did. You know, like, you know, he didn't start the game up till he went into the Army at 19 or 20. And, you know, he, he went up and went to work and hit balls before he went to work and then he'd get done and he wouldn't hesitate not only you know a lot of people get off work and they go play but he'd go practice hmm. and we'd go out together and we may hit balls for a little while but then we'd go out and play and we'd go around the edge of the greens and he'd throw two or three balls in different areas of the green so I always developed and worked hard on my short game because I was pretty small as a kid and he knew that was going to be an important part at that point to be able to compete because I wasn't very big so when I went to my sophomore year in high school at Raytown, we didn't have anybody, and I hung out with all these football players and friends of mine, and they were a bunch of wrestlers, and they said, we don't have anybody at 98 pounds, and <laughs> you're way 98, you don't have to lose weight, so we're going to make you wrestle in the wintertime. <laughs> so out of nowhere, I'd never wrestled in my life, and they pulled me in there, and I said, okay, so I'll try it. So I started wrestling, so I wrestled for a couple of years in high school, but um, and I wasn't very big, so I think, you know, I think I, I've always had I've always been a good chipper and pitcher and, and putter, I think, as a, as a kid growing up, and I've been able to sustain that, and that's probably one of my strengths. Too. So you were 98 pounds? That yeah, was your my sophomore class? year in high school, and I wrestled 98. But the bad thing was yeah. is I wasn't going to do it my junior year because I'd gone up to 130. And I said, I'm done. They said, no, we don't have anybody at 105. Uh, so yeah. you're gonna, So I had to lose 20-some pounds and wrestle all that year. That was miserable. You had to oh. lose weight? 20-some pounds and keep it off for three months to wrestle that year. But then after that, oh. I quit. I said, no more. So I had the same. Uh, so I wrestled senior year 119. Okay. And so um, like you, our 134, who was the captain of the team, got hurt. Well, there was two of us at 119. 
the other guy was better than me. So they said, we're going to keep you at 119. I was the only guy who had to eat Big Macs to qualify to, to lay on the, um, on the mat because I could tell you the pattern of every ceiling of every gym <laughs> in Connecticut yeah, because, because I was on my back You're going much. from 119 to 134. You're going up against some studs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had to eat. There was a couple times they're like, son, you're, you're too small. You can't wrestle this kid. But, and then, yeah, that yeah. and I broke, I broke my nose, Wardo, and they made me wear a, um, a hockey mask. So oh I was gosh. intimidating um, while I was getting my, my ass beat. I think there's still some wrestling chalk on your shirt from that match back in the late, late 80s. <laughs> yeah, you know how So that was interesting getting into the wrestling. But it did show, I mean, the discipline involved that year. I mean, literally back in those days, and I think today they only let you lose so much weight. And yeah. back in those days, we'd go to the gym and we had our own room and they'd turn the heater on. Mm -hmm. We'd be in sweats and plastic sweats and lose eight, nine pounds during practice. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have to go home and I couldn't eat and then go through the same process. And at the time I, I worked at Steak and Ale Restaurant. I was a cook there and I worked there four or five days a week because I always saved my money up in the winter. So I'd have money to go travel and play tournaments and stuff. And I said, man, I mean, I learned so much in discipline. I mean, I couldn't eat, and I'm sitting there cooking steaks, and I said, boy, this is it. So I got through that junior year, and I said, I'm just going to play golf. So that's the year that if it was nice, I'd go hit balls for an hour before I went to school, and, and then I'd play after school all the time. That's awesome. And Raytown, huh? Yeah, I went that's to Raytown. Right? Yeah, at East, yeah. Wow. And we've got a lot of buddies from Raytown, but, you know, none of them are golfers. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think be... Raytown and golf. You think you think the likes of maybe Pembroke Hill or the Carriage uh, Club. You know the Wardo style, right? Yeah, you know, grew up sort of with a silver spoon in his mouth. Yeah. Of course, you're going to become a good golfer. Yeah, you're crazy. Member at Mission, <laughs> member at Mission Hills. You know, I understand. You know how I mean. Well, I had to run from all those Wolf Creek guys, the Donnie Markies of the world. I had there to run and get away from him. So, <laughs> okay. So fast forward. So. You, you get to UCLA. Talk through about your game there, maybe some of your teammates that you played with and uh, how you were able to improve and then and then clearly turn pro and, and make it. Um, probably the most um, impelling factor is Corey Pavin and I came in there together as freshmen. And uh, Corey was very skilled and very good Southern California player coming in there. And we virtually spent all our time together playing and practicing, and that obviously helped my game. I mm. mean, he was um, very skilled, and our practice time to hitting balls was right in the middle of campus on the intramural field. We could practice there from 6 in the morning till 10 in the morning and hit our own shag balls. So um, we all weren't the best of students there, so we would schedule all of our classes from 8 o'clock until – 11 o'clock, but we would never go, and we would stay and practice and hitting golf balls every morning from about 7 o'clock till 11 o'clock, and we'd have go lunch, and then we played our golf at Bel Air or Brentwood or Riviera or whatever in the afternoon. So Talk about roughing it. Yeah, yeah it was right. tough. <laughs> from Raytown to Bel Air, the, new fre the fresh prince over here. Yeah, so that was my nickname, too. I was mean, it? a couple of guys called was me it? Prince of Bel Air, so I got called the prince. But, oh, that's awesome. You know, Delcine and Duffy, they came later. Jay from St. Louis, he came a couple years later. But Corey and I spent a lot of time together, and I think the two of us practiced really hard. We worked hard together and uh, got a lot better. And uh, then continued through amateur golf in the summer times, and and uh, that really paid off, and really started seeing some dividends. At that How point. did you get noticed by UCLA? Long shooting story. Good scores. Well, not so much. Um, I had a great uncle that lived in Maryville, Missouri. Okay, and he had a daughter that was a couple years older than I, who was a very good player, and she got a scholarship to go play at USC on their team, and he happened to know. 
I don't know how, uh, a friend of his who also played golf, Eddie Marins, who was our coach, and while she was at school, Eddie Marins was giving her lessons. And then when I became, after my junior year or something, my great uncle said something to him, the fact that, you know, got this nephew that's really doing good, da 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 He says, well, I know Eddie Marin's at Bel Air. He's, a, he's the head pro at Bel Air, but he's also the UCLA golf coach. So wow. gave me a call. They flew me out flew me out there, had a visit, and I said, sign me up. So oh, yeah, beautiful. to go from Kansas City and to go to Westwood and, and to see everything about it. And I've always been a sports nut, and they're so good in so many different mm-hmm. sports from women's volleyball to softball to gymnastics to that little John Wooden Center. The Wooden Center. It? And, you know, we're struggling a little bit in football and basketball yeah. over the years, but we were still pretty good back then. So, and, uh, you know, got to play Bel Air and kind of looked around that. And I said, yeah, where can I sign the line? So mm-hmm. it worked out great. It was well, really I'd exciting. say you were two-time All-American, right? And you were a Pac-10 Pac um, Player of the, of the Year. year. Yeah, 81. one year. That's pretty, yeah, he did well. Year. No, I, like I said, continued to progress and got a little better every year. And, you know, I, we worked hard. Corey was the same way. Corey worked hard. Uh, and uh, I think Corey was in 2000, I don't know what year it was, or nine, or one year, Corey. Corey's junior year, I think he was NCAA Player of the Year. So he was... You know, three-time, first-time All-American, and then he was Player of the Year that year. Beat Clamp it out, and some pretty impressive people in that that year, and that helped playing with him every day. And you know, I think he won nine or ten college tournaments that year. Wow, that's a hell of a year. Yeah, yeah. I used to hear stories about Corey and Payne Stewart. So Chuck Cook, I'm a Chuck Cook disciple. I've worked with Chuck throughout uh, when I was at KU, and then when I turned pro for several years, and kind of have adopted some of the philosophies that, that he instilled in me and how he teaches golf and how he gets guys to perform better. But he talked a lot about how hard he would work and Paven just, you know, would figure out and he would work the ball and could could hit a lot of different shots and clearly a lot of creativity. Yeah, a lot of people say who's the most talented player in their day. I mean, a lot of people will say Corey Paven because he never hit it very far, mm-hmm. um, hit it pretty low. But uh, in his heyday, he could really work the ball. He was a great short iron player and his tenacity and always a great chipper and putter. So he and I, I think, connected a lot because we were both good sh- short game guys and we continued to work on it and, you know, pick each other's brains and figure out what, you know, how to get better even at short game. So, and we were both pretty small in stature. So it, it was a nice fit. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Well, and, and we talk a lot about how the, the game has changed, right? The, huh. the athlete has changed. We, we were down at the, um, the top of the rock, um, you know, the the Champions Tour event yeah. this year, and so we sat. We we're at the the, the Hilton, and we sat down with uh, Rocco and uh, Lee Jansen, old buddies, right? Old college, college teammates, buddies. yeah. And um, and you know, of course, you know Rocco. He's I mean, he's a cartoon character. He's so funny, right? <laughs> can't shut him up. I, I can't shut him <laughs> up, right? He's got a cigar. He's funny, and so so he said. Um, I asked him the question. I said, "So, um, do you feel like you could still beat some of these guys, the big guys? Can you beat them?" He said. He said, you know, I'm a little cocky, so yeah, I, I do, <laughs> but here's what we'd have to do. He said, I think you could put Lee and I, um, give us a, put us all 270 yards out, all oh, of us. So if we're playing against tee. Tiger, we're playing against him, off the tee, put us all at 270, and I think Lee and I can beat anybody. Now... So, what's your take? I mean, if you look at these athletes, the Woodlands, the Kepkas, the, the, the Shoffleys, the whatever, would, would you make that same claim? I don't know if I'd make the same claim. I, I, I think 
in general, sports, athletes are bigger, stronger, faster, and more knowledgeable about biomechanics in general. I mean, John Havlicek is not the same player right. as, you know, Boston. Anybody, you know, <laughs> who, who, whoever you want to say. I mean, right. whether it's LeBron or whatever. I mean, there's nobody that's put together and takes care of their body like LeBron does on a daily basis that could compete 30 years ago. I mean, it's just that's why I'm not a big fan in sports of ever comparing people outside of their areas against each other. Huh. I, I think it's, yeah. it's, right. it's, it's really not reasonable because you're not comparing apples to apples yeah. anymore. How can you compare, uh, you know, LeBron James to anybody? I right. mean, Larry he's, Bird. He's a spec- you know, he's a Le- specimen. I mean, yeah. he takes such good care. I mean, so um, I don't know. I think the guys today are spectacular. Um, they work They work their tails off. They work in the gym. The average height used to be 5'10". I bet it's 6'2 or 3 now. I yeah. mean, they weigh, you know, 225, 240. I mean, it's a different deal. The game is all about speed. Um, but, you know... Golf courses are becoming obsolete based upon how far not only the ball's going, the clubs are going, but the athletes are bigger, stronger, and faster. Yeah. So I think the only thing they can do is I think they need to add spin to the ball to where if you want to swing the club, you know, 125 miles an hour and have a 184-mile-hour ball speed, it's going to spin more. It's going to curve mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bad shots are going to go off. And the tour has really taken away the rough pretty much most of the time because their superstars don't care about hitting it so straight. They want to hit it far, and they're in the entertainment business as well as competitive business. Yeah. So, so 20 under par is going to be a winning score a lot of weeks. But, you know, when you go to places that are 6,900, Pebble Beach, um, Hilton Head, uh, they're actually the shorter courses actually bring the longer hitters back yeah, into right. the game a little bit. And I think spin would, would do a lot to where, you know um, – the courses would become more viable because a guy said something to me the other day that about golf course and uh, architecture and what you know everybody's about. Well, we need to bring this back to its original design. Well, the original design, if it was built in 1930 or 1960 or 1980, is really obsolete based upon the best players in the world today because of their athletic ability and equipment changes. What needs to be said is, how can we bring this golf course back to the intent of the architect? to play the same mm. as when it was built. Correct. So when Augusta National was built, people hit driver 5 iron to number 1, they hit driver 4 iron to number 18. You know, they had long holes and short holes, but there aren't any holes on the tour where guys hit a driver 4 or 5 iron to a par 4. Right. It doesn't not, happen. Not many, unless you're Colt Nost. Well, <laughs> But nobody, nobody has that figure or has that personality. Oh, he's got a big one at that. He's got a big one so, at that. So, you know, to back to Rocco and yeah. them, um, you know, could I compete? You know, yeah, pitching, chipping, bunker yeah. game. Rocco's very good as well. Yeah. Uh, Lee's very good too, chipper, pitcher. Yeah, you can do a lot. But at 270, a lot of these guys are, are hitting a three-wood and flying it on the green. So we're having to smash a driver and hit it on the green. So I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but – uh, well, I these guys are awful good. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I play with Ricky and Phil in the wintertime, and when they come back to Southern California, where I'm from, we all play at Bear Creek there and members there. And, you know, I play against them and compete against them, but it's tough. I mean, you know, when a guy's out driving you by 30 or 40 yards, plus they're a club or two longer than you, I mean, he's hitting a 9-iron, you're hitting a 4 or 5-iron, it's pretty hard to compete. Yeah, right. I don't care yeah. who you are. Yeah. Well, I, I don't disagree. With, I know what Rocco's saying, but I think DJ, or not DJ, Brooks said it best, is look, when, these, you know, when he's prepping for the PGA and he's playing against some club pros, he's saying, look, 
I only got to beat X amount of guys. He's 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 kind of right. He's one hundred percent correct. And then and then he's willing to say, I'll hit driver while these other guys lay back, try to hit the fairway. I'll I'll gamble. I'll take my wedge out of the rough from one thirty eight or whatever. One hundred percent. While these guys are back here, maybe in the fairway, maybe not banging it from one seventy five, one eighty. And so I don't know. I'm not he's against Rocco, but I'm he's correct. Brooks is right on that. But if you have a course that's set up like the Ryder Cup. Then Brooks can hit his driver all he wants, and then all of a sudden from 140 he can't get a wedge on the green. Then it becomes a different story. Correct. Or if that ball of his, when he swings as hard as he can with it with a driver, instead of going 310, maybe goes 285, and he's got 156 out of the rough, now he's really in trouble. But Correct. Since the square groove issue happened a long time ago, the tour took the philosophy, well, now flyers are back in the game, so we don't have to grow any rough more than two or half to three inches. Well, we used to play four-inch rough all the time. Right. So that whole dynamics changed, and you see now – and the statistics show it with ShotLink and, and what Sweeney and all these guys do is the closer you can drive it to the green, the better off you are in terms of your proximity to the hole. So if you can keep it inside of the 60-yard corridor, if it's trees or whatever, these guys are going to hit driver every time because they're strong enough and big enough. Even if the rough's somewhat big, you know, I can hit a wedge or nine iron from 130 or 140. Right, right. And if I hey, miss the fairway laying up, I'm really dead. How about a radical concept? Let's come up with a radical concept here. How about... A different golf ball based on the course you're playing. So you think of NASCAR. You think somebody's, you know what, they have different tires. They have to change their car. It's got to be a little different. How about when you play a short course, you play less of a juiced golf ball? Or is this a little wacky? Uh, it's kind of wacky. Yeah, it's wacky. <laughs> but you could do, I thought eventually that Augusta National has enough cloud and no one would ever skip it that they could actually say, Okay, it's January 1. These are the measurements of the golf ball that's going to have to be played at Augusta. A tennis ball is the same, mm -hmm. right? A yeah. baseball is supposedly mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. for everybody. And we'll give you your time, and you can stamp Titleist on it or tailor-made mm -hmm. on it or whatever you want to stamp on it, but these are the Why not put the Masters logo on it? Or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. So I thought if that could ever happen, if anything would ever happen with the ball, Yeah. That's, that's where it would happen, that Augusta could make the stance that we're standing up for the old courses of the world and we're going to add 20% yeah. to the to the spin of the rate of the ball or something. Or uh, other people said if you made the ball bigger, it would go shorter as well. Because remember back in the old days when you used to play the small ball in the British Open, it would go through the wind better and go farther. Yeah. So as you make it bigger, I think it has more effect with the wind and it would spin more and stuff. So there's a lot of different philosophies. But I've been a big proponent that I think the rules need to be have bifurcation. I think the professional golf in today is so much superior than the average player or amateur yeah. that to make the same rules for both, I think, is impractical. Yeah. That professional golf, whether you want to say PGA Tour, European Tour, Asian Tour, they're the only professional sport that I know of that has an amateur body governing them and making the rules. Mm -hmm. Well said. Now – just the PGA Tour is playing for five or six hundred million dollars throughout the course of the year. Why wouldn't you want to have control of your project, of your, of, of your, you know, right. your product? Right. I mean, do you think that anytime soon that college, that pro football, the NFL is going to go back and use have the NCAA regulate yeah, right. them? No chance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, is professional baseball going to have the same yeah. rules as college baseball with metal bats yeah. and no. or short parts or three point line? But professional golf, in my opinion. 
is the only group that has the USGA and the RNA, which is our amateur bodies, yeah. dictating the rules of golf. And if you look what's happened in the rules with – look back at the first one that comes to mind is Dustin Johnson losing the PGA at, at whisp, whispering, Whistling Straits. Whistling Straits. Yeah. A joke. You know, you look what happened to uh, Lexi at uh, Mission Hills. You look at what happened uh, uh, you know, at Brooks at Oakmont and all that. This is a USGA and the r- rules and how these things are coming about. People calling in. I think the tour and their tour officials are well more accomplished because this is what they do on a weekly basis. Yeah. So their officials are out there. And you put the European tour, the LPGA, and the PGA tour together. I think you would have a set of rules that would you know, get at 20% to the ball. But are you going to go buy a ball in a pro shop that's 20% more spin and go shorter? Of course not. So they say, well, well, the manufacturers are going to sue us or do all this. I don't think so. I don't know of anybody that's an amateur golfer that's going to go, oh, I want to play the same ball that Ricky Fowler's playing. It's going to go 20 yards further and spin more and go more offline. I don't think so. Yeah, I doubt it. Although but, you, do see the, you do see the 15 handicap that goes to whistling straights that has to play the back tees and has no business being back correct. there. But he's going to shoot 100, 110. Oh, yeah. So I, I think the time has come, and I think that I've talked to the commissioner. I think the tour needs to step up, but I think they, they don't want to step on tradition. But I think, you know, on the Champions Tour, you know, there's been a lot of issues with the long putter. And yeah, the right. rule changes they tried to make, they were actually probably better off letting them anchor. Because now where the rule was written, it's hard to, to determine yeah. if they're anchoring or not in, uh, anchoring. So, uh, you know, then all of a sudden you could make a rule for professional golf that the putter has to be the shortest in the bag or it can only be 39 inches long because a driver can't be more than 48 inches long. So why couldn't you have a, a restriction on how long a putter could be? Right. So there has to be a skill level involved, and is it more skillful to be able to troll the, control the fulcrum point with a short putter as opposed to a long putter? I believe so. Yeah. But then the average player could say, okay, grab your shirt if you want to just so you can play the game longer to grow the game. Right. So you could have two set of rules, which I think would be more beneficial for everybody. Yeah, I Tom, this is all you. about the knee drop, isn't it? This is all about dropping That's it by the too. knee. This oh, is see, we it. got him wound up now. We got him wound up with the w- knee drop. Woodland got me when we were down in Turks <laughs> on that rule uh, early in the year. He got me. <laughs> he called you out. He tried to call me out, and uh, I almost dropped it. And he's and then I. But it's not a penalty if you drop it as long as you don't hit it. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, listen. We're gonna take a commercial break. We come back. Um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about um, your experiences, the time you spent, because the memories you had to create were just off the charts. The friendships you had mentioned, Corey and and some of your other buddies, Steve Pate, Duffy, and and all those. But you had, you had to you had to build some lifelong friends and memories. And and I want to know after this break, what's it like looking back on those those times? I mean, it's got to be serious nostalgia. So hey, we are having a great time with Tom Pernice Jr. back from the 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 West Coast to his roots. You know, he's 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 probably talking a little slower now. He's the blood pressure's down a little bit. You're amongst the commoners here That's in the right. heartland, right? <laughs> great to be Ray back. Town's best yeah. on the Golf Underground ESPN Radio.
Welcome back, Golf Underground, ESPN Radio, Sully Wardo. We are um, with the great Kansas City star, Tom Pernice Jr. Wait, is what is man. that rolling of the eyes? I mean, you, you represented Kansas City golf pretty damn good. I wouldn't say great. I mean, I just well, I, had a very fortunate career and very happy and very blessed. But, well, I uh, mean, now, Tom Watson is in the great category. I mean... You know what? He's great. Kansas City great. My standards of greatness are pretty low. I mean, I mean, you're looking at a two-time net club champion. Okay, <laughs> got to watch I, that handicap, right? Some called it great, Tom. You know, some <laughs> called it great, and so I'm, managing the handicap's important. It is important if you're trying to win the five dollar <laughs> NASA. It, absolutely. Now, speaking of um, speaking of great, uh, your friend here just told me. That uh, you are the only guy in 2011 to um, be fully exempt on the PGA, ever, ever, to be fully exempt on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour at the same time. You know what we call that? Great. Okay. That is great. No. No, I was fortunate enough that um, I, I, I stayed exempt on the regular tour until uh, I was almost 52. So nice. uh, I just played very limited time, like when I turned 50 in late in September I played uh the SAS championship in uh Cary, North Carolina. It was my first event and I won it. So I was very fortunate. But nice. then I went back to the tour that year and I kept my card and I finished in the top twenty five that year. Then the following year, uh played the tour pretty much full time, uh when I was fifty one. Uh kept my card again and uh just played five or six events on the champions tour. Um you know, everybody said, Well why would you want to do that? And I said, you know, there's something about if you can still stay out there and feel like you can compete with the best players in the world. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's the greatest place in the right. world to be. I mean, you know, granted, I love what we do at the Champions Tour. It's it's a blessing, but there's nothing like playing on the big stage, PGA Tour. I mean, uh, the guys are so good, and and I mean, it's where it needs to be. But so I was able to do that for a couple of years. And, Did you ever think of getting the uh, the big old um, Mark and Brenda Kalkovecki um, uh, tour bus and no. just? Um, <laughs> I like I like a town. nice hotel room. Do I you? Mean, yeah, I mean, but a lot of guys like their buses. So, I mean, they can take all their stuff with them, and mostly they have dogs, and that works out pretty good. And but everybody's different. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what's the talking about hotel rooms and and travel and all that? What's the what's the least part, least most fun part of the job? Um, I've gotten to hate packing and unpacking. Hmm. Oh, Who doesn't? And. You know, a lot of times living on the West Coast, I'll go out for three weeks on the East Coast and I don't go back. So you might have to pack for a week where it's going to be possibly cold in Michigan and we might have to wear sweaters. And then you're going to Birmingham the next week where it's going to be 85. Mm -hmm. And then from there you may fly and go to Minneapolis and play and you might need sweaters again so you're packing for three weeks and it's totally different weather and then each week you're packing and unpacking and packing and unpacking and packing and then you get home you have to unpack again I've gotten to where I'm not a big fan of that um, fortunately I've got United is one of my main sponsors and uh, they take really good care of me and that helps my travel you know they put me up front a lot and their service has been fantastic so I've had them for almost 30 years and that's been a huge relief wow. for me you know a lot of the guys that on the regular tour are making a lot of money or flying privately and stuff which is nothing like but uh, the people united have made my life a lot easier having that relationship for a long time so that helps but uh, i'm tired of packing and unpacking <laughs> yeah. back in your day were there many guys flying private or were there would you look at it as more of blue collar back then and now these well, guys are a little bit fancier there's a lot of people making a lot more money now than 
since we Tiger. did before. I mean, I was fortunate enough to played pretty well in my 40s, which when the Tigers, quote the Tiger era, and so yeah. we made a, played a lot for a lot of money. But, you know, Arnie was really the first one that flew privately, but he was doing a lot of business with Mark McCormick and IMG and stuff. But uh, I think it's just continued to grow in terms of, you know, these people look at recovery time and how how much they can get home, and, you know, it's worth, you know, spend $750,000 to a million dollars a year you know, for private air travel. Yeah. If it allows them to be home and see their family on Sunday night and be there all day Monday and then get on the plane if they're playing the next week on Tuesday. And, you know, it's, it's you know, how much money do you want to save for to give away to your kids at the end of your career? I mean, look at look at LeBron James and the, the amount of money and Tom Brady that they spend on their body to, for recovery and to keep them healthy and to keep going and they're playing late in their careers. I mean, um, technology and, and just knowledge of science, I mean, more and more athletes are figuring out what do I have to do to you know, to get better sleep, to get, recover better. How do I train, do my workouts, and when do I do them correctly? And, you know, private air travel obviously makes it easier. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough with the people at United to take care of me. So, so, well, so, so it's like funny, you, well, let me story. ask you first. Would you ever, um, because you fly private down to the Turks, uh, you know, and play your little annual golf tournament. Not would on you my ever, would, would you ever go back to United, Wardo, uh, you know, having done that, flying to the Turks in private with <laughs> you the know, Woodland? I'm a Southwest guy. I'm not sponsored by uh, by them, but uh, I'm a Southwest guy. I heard up, I'm usually about a C-22 guy. Yeah, because um, you're but, too late. Right, because you're, you forget you forget to check in. Turtle, I hate packing. Put the vodka Sarah, down. Sarah will pack, pack <laughs> me uh but sometimes she forgets to check me in so oh uh, my gosh if she's listening no but i think great point on on kind of taking care of their body it was about it was about a year ago i was in phoenix during um palm springs's event and i was i was playing some golf with woodland and uh good old mr george brett and gary had a guy a physio guy out there um that works with a, a, a basketball player that's been named on this show and George and I were giving him grief. Oh, you're going to have your stretcher guy come over here and teach you how to stretch, touch your toes. But Gary, you know, Gary, all joking aside, said, look, I'll invest any amount of money in my body to make sure that I'm healthy and can play up to my potential. And, you know, everyone's kind of battled injuries on and off, and Gary's had shoulders and stuff like that. But, you know, it really well said that, you know, it's just it's a it's a business now. 100%. It's always been a business, but now More it's, so. It's it's even more of a business. You know, VJ Singh and I were very good friends on the tour and spent a lot of time. I met VJ when I played in Asia before I ever got my card. And we got on the tour, and his work ethic kind of mm. was with mine, work hard, and we spent a lot of time. We played practice rounds together. But he and I were the first guys together, and we bought a trainer out on tour. Really? We were That's the awesome. very first person that we hired a trainer together, actually a guy um, that traveled the tour with us, and he— kept us committed because we paid him per week. And to me, that makes me committed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I go to the gym, but it's not my favorite place to go. So it's easy for me to say, oh, I'm tired. I'm not going to go after practicing all day on Tuesday. And But he kept us committed. So we worked out every afternoon. He'd go find a gym for us to go work out every afternoon. We'd get stretched that evening after we got done. He'd come to the course that morning and stretch us before we go play and practice, and we'd work out every afternoon. But BJ and I shared this trainer, and we did it. We were the first ones to bring that to the tour before we ever had any vans or physio people or trainers out there. So wow. we were kind of the start of it all. What was your uh, what was your results three two three five years in after you started doing that? Well, I I had my best years in my forties, and that's basically when it started. And I was I've never had any injuries in my entire career to speak of. 
Well, and so, you had your card till 52. That says yeah. something about so, you. So um, to play the game for that many years, which uh, and really to have no major injuries, never had to have surgery, never had to take any time off to play all those years. And, you know, early in my career, I kept my card my first five years, but then after that I missed it and played in Europe for two years, played back in Asia and Japan for a year, and then got it back on the web or whatever, the Corn Ferry now for a year, and then kept my card after that for the next, you know, 15 to 17 years, never had any injuries. But, you know, I think the knowledge that the trainer had and was working on basically functional mobility training um, to keep us in good shape, stronger, but injury-free from the stretching, I think, had a lot to do with it. And, you know, nobody's probably over the years hit more balls than VJ and I on the range. (laughs) We were kind of known for that. And relatively speaking, both not have any major injuries. VJ's having a few now, but, you know, knock on wood, I've been very fortunate. But I think that comes from maybe what we did and we started it, you know, early on. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're 60. How long do you want to play competitively? Uh, As long as I feel like I can compete. So uh, I'd like to feel if I could compete up to 65 and, and, you know, stay stay competitive. You know, I won last year and finished second uh, one week last year. So still still can compete, I feel like, and can. And, um, and, you know, when I first was playing out here, I was way above average distance. Now I'm probably average. And you got people like, you know, Retief and Ernie and guys that are hitting it longer. So, you know, you're giving up a little bit of yardage there. They're still just 50 and 51. And they're pretty big guys, too, yeah. so that's going to happen. But... You know, I look at Hale Irwin, what he did in his career, and he played pretty competitively till he was 65 or 66. Tom Watson played for a long time. So if I stay healthy and if I can continue to increase and keep my swing speed up and, and some strength, I think uh, I'd like to feel like I can to compete, but we'll see. So uh, before the commercial break, I asked um, about your memories. And, and, you know, certainly when you when – you, are coming to the end of your career five years out you got but do you ever take time to get a little nostalgic and say holy crap look what my life was right and I, we talked about Rocco earlier and he, he said you know I've never had a job and of course Lee says yes it is a job we work our butts off right I mean they're, they're like uh, it's, hard women. To, it's hard to consider a job when it's something that you love and you're passionate about yeah you know, granted at times it's a it's a pain and you don't want to get on the road and travel or you don't want to get up and go to the gym. Yeah, but everybody has that in life and in their jobs. But, you know, I feel extremely fortunate that, one, I grew up in Kansas City and was able to look towards and model and wish and hope and watch Tom Watson here in Kansas right. City. You know, Tom's 10 years older than me, so he was always far enough ahead that I could always see what he was doing. It was, you know, obviously when I was a little kid just playing, he was – dominating here locally in junior and amateur golf and then he went on to Stanford and then got onto the tour and then I was going on to UCLA so he was always out there and someone that I could always look up to and it's not only his quality of play but how he acted you know how he carried himself was always first class so that that's something that you know you always think about and feel very fortunate and this year at the senior open I was lucky enough that he had announced this was going to be his last senior open and he mm. and I got paired together and got to play oh, in a two wow. in the third round so that that was cool you know and um, wow. so, you know, things like that. And my early years on the tour, um, I got to know and played practice rounds with Seve when he used to come mm. over and play the week before the uh, the Opens and the Masters and stuff. So he and Tom Siegman and I really got to know him, and we played practice rounds with him the weeks before the Majors and the weeks of the Majors a lot. So I really paid attention to his 
instinctive style of short game and just tried to model and look and understand and pick his brain a little bit. And, and I think uh, that's really helped uh, helped my career too, I think, because I think um, I work hard on it, but I think what I learned in, in just watching and modeling my technique in short game has is, is really, really helped me throughout my career and really been a, a, a stronghold. And things like that have been, you know, pretty inspirational when you look back and then, you know, he gets brain cancer and we lose mm. him. I mean, and he, he's, he's totally a different guy that, that people perceive you, you see him as the bad guy because of Ryder Cups <laughs> and, yep. you know, him yeah. and Azinger going at it yeah. and all this, but he's a very shy, he was very quiet, um, didn't really say much, you know, he's kind of behind the scenes and almost scared when he came over here back in the time because not a lot of guys came over here and played before majors. He was kind of one of the first guys. And mm-hmm. um, so he's really a nice guy and soft-spoken, but at the same time he was intensely competitive and you really saw what he had in the Ryder Cup. But I, I feel like when they included the rest of the European continent, he was the one that made the Ryder Cup oh, what yeah. it is today because of not only the quality of play and that the Spaniards and some of them brought, but his his passion. I mean, you saw it when he played and 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 his tenacity and how bad and he wanted to win. His shot-making abilities. Yeah. Right? So he, it, he was my favorite player growing up. So much so that the very first set of golf clubs I bought were Sounder irons wow. because it was Seve <laughs> and Sounder. There you go. That that was the so I wanted to be Seve, right? The classic. But I out. think he he had the CPG punch out shot better better than CPG. <laughs> but he made the Ryder Cup to what it is today, right? And it's continued to grow. But uh, the Ryder Cup wasn't anything big until really the European continents came to proof and yeah. really could compete. And yeah. he was really the the father of all that and brought it to well and that's we had joe scovern on a show the other day and talking through you know what has the president's cup narrowed the gap and it probably has but still the Ryder cup is there always going to be the Ryder cup and you know it's it's just the the camaraderie and the teammate and you know the the rivalry per se is is pretty amazing so all right so let's do this let's take one more commercial break and we come back um certainly at some point we're gonna have to hit uh time with the rapid fire questions i want to geek out about the golf swing well guy, all right so hey, student of the time would you be able to help me um he talked about my flip you know I, I believe in turning that six iron into a nine iron and he's tried to coach me through it and i don't think it's the content of his coaching i think it's accurate i think it's his <laughs> delivery del- it's definitely the delivery <laughs> he, he, right so, so he he's good with the what to do but he's he's really bad at motivating me and so i think part of me is like screw you i'll flip it deal with it and so maybe you can, uh, maybe your delivery a, bit, a little bit better. We were Tom Pernice Jr. for Kansas City, the 1999 Buick Open champ and um, um, all-around great guy. Merry Christmas to Tom Pernice Jr. here on the Golf Underground, ESPN Radio.
Hey, welcome back. Off Underground ESPN Radio Studio. Sully, Wardo, Tom Pernice Jr. And um, we just took a, a little a commercial break. Um, <laughs> and I asked, uh, I asked Mr. Pernice, how can we help the flip? And I've got some great video now. So, Wardo, you know, did you see how excited I got listening to him? Oh, I got more excited. Clearly, he's got passion for the game. That's why I said I this is my wet dream for a show. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, you two, you, you, you second level stuff. Yeah, but if you can help guys like Charlie and Harry Hilliard, they're 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 good golfers. You're dealing with them, um, you know, a fifty-one year old mildly backfatted Irish guy. And uh, if you can turn me into here's the goal this year, no. just get me down to a get me down to a, a, a five, maybe. Oh, just maybe. Get me to a five. All right. Well, why don't we focus on the process of how you're getting going to get to a five versus get me to a five? Well, you're, the swing fits just too far for me. You know, that's a lot of work. <laughs> There's you know? excuse number thing, one. You know. <laughs> <laughs> did like, you hear? Did you hear uh, Mr. Pernice talk about how he drives thirty to forty-five minutes in California traffic just to get to the TPI facility? Did yeah, you hear that? Yeah, I, I did hear that. Like I tell people, you know, you, you give them some information and they can see the progress that they can make. And, you know, video this day and age doesn't lie. So when you, you can make some improvements and they can see it. But I said, you know, it's up to you how good you want to get. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's okay. Some people work. Some people want to enjoy and just go play golf. Some people don't mind going practicing, you know, a couple times a week. So it's, you know, one thing is if you can get good information, it's not it's not always easy to get good information. But if you can get it, then it's up to you as an individual to how much better you want to get. He wants to get to a five instead of a nine. It's up to him. Right. So, well, and I, I see this a lot with these high school kids that I help mentor and teach or, you know, whether it's on the golf swing or the body. And I, I sit here and see the dad calls and says, all right, we got to get this kid better. And, you know, I got a kid, bless his heart, a great player, and he's uh, number one on his team. And he's been coming to our, our sessions for about once a week. And, uh, you know, there's there's – 14 sessions a week that are small group, whatever. And now all of a sudden he's going to jump on a bird and go out to San Diego and see if he can get some, some new information from the guys at TPI, which he might get some great information, but the key, the key in the whole deal is the process and you know, how good do you want to get and dig dig it out of the dirt? And if the dad's worried about getting better and and it's up to this kid, you can give him the opportunities, but you know, maybe the dad needs to go work. I mean, if it's all, you know, how much better you want, I mean, you know, as a parent, you want the best for your children, but ultimately it's up to the the kid of right. how good he wants to get and how much effort he wants to put into it. And all you can do as a parent is try to put him in front of the best information and and then the opportunity is theirs. Exactly, exactly. And it's probably getting harder because you're dealing with it with some of your younger guys. Work ethic, right? We talked to, right at the start, we talked about your father instilling work ethic yeah. and that practice and and. You know, I don't know if it's an overblown comment that the kids don't work like they used to, but I, I don't know. They don't have any problem in Korea. Let me promise uh, you right, that. They right. do not. So culture has a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, video games today. I mean, I'm I'm not a big technology guy, so I'm I'm a I hate I shouldn't say hate, but I'm not a big proponent of video games. I think it's ruined our society, and yeah. I think the shootings in school are yeah. directly involved with the violence in video games. I agree so, with that. Um, you know. You know, we're in a different culture and, you know, things are going a different way. So, but they don't seem to have any trouble with not only the women and the LPGA Tour and the Koreans' dominance and the great players there, but you're seeing more and more of them come on the PGA Tour on the men's side as well. No, yeah. you're totally right. You're totally right. All right. So let's geek out on golf swing a little bit. So talk through what you've been doing on short game, who you've been working with, and then what, what are you working on on your full swing in terms of uh, technique? Um, 
been fortunate enough, James Seekman, who was just uh, awarded PGA of America Teacher of the Year last year. I've been working with him on my short game for almost 30 years now. He, um, when I first got on tour, his older brother, Tom Seekman, and I traveled together, and um, he spent some time caddying for his brother, and he was there the time that we were playing with Seve all those times, and he has a he was a decent player and played at Nebraska and stuff, but he struggled with short games. So when we were with Seve, he was obviously being a very observant and all that stuff, just like I was. But then shortly after that, he basically he went and spent a year with um, at Dave Pell's short game school, um, learned some of that basic stuff, thought some of it was right, some was wrong, and he's been a teacher of short games since ever since then. So um, he and I have worked together for almost 30 years now, and. He, you know, he comes out and sees me once a month out on tour. He's got a lot of great players that he's worked with over the years, uh, but he's got two books out: one on pitching and chipping and bunker game, another one on putting. Omaha, Nebraska in the summertime and Arizona in the winter. Just uh, been fantastic. Uh, uh, he's around the tour all the time and basic fundamentals. And um, we found working with Greg Rose and those at TPI if. You know anything about the sequence and swing and the waterfall effect on the computer? That uh, short game's backwards of the long swing. Mm -hmm. So in the sequence and long game, it's you know your hips, shoulders, arms, and then club head. And then actually in pitching and and chipping, it's club head, arms, shoulders, hips. Everything's last. So it's crazy how different it is. And I think that's where Tiger got in trouble. Some working with mm -hmm. Sean Foley is you know he says, well my. Uh, mini golf swing is my pitching and chipping well tiger used to have a great short game but he rotated the club open had this little cupped left wrist the body weighted the arms and the club head were active and uh, i think he soon realized that after that but he went through a tough time of that mm -hmm. because he was doing what he was doing in his golf swing and that's leading edge forward lean in the shaft no oh. bounce it was it was hard to watch but not a lot of people understand the flow and the dynamics of what happens in short game to be able to pitch the ball and to use the bounce correctly and how that works. So, uh, you know, James knew that watching Savvy, but then it wasn't until time and technology that Greg Rose got a hold of me and says, okay, I want to see. And then his mind was blown when the waterfall was 180 degrees backwards. Yeah. So the philosophy is almost everything you do in your long game, you want to do the opposite in the short game. Yep. Yeah, the uh – does that explain why you're really good at the the uh, high lob? That's why that's your favorite shot. It's yeah. my favorite shot. Correct. <laughs> it probably is, right? No, it's 100. It's all you talk about. Yeah. So exactly. Give me a 60 degree wedge, Tom. Yeah, I, because I'm, his face is open. Yep. And he's, he's got, got the, the club head is is leading instead of the forward leaning the shaft. And but you know I was always a good pitcher and chipper and didn't know why, whatever, and struggled a little bit as a ball striker, relatively speaking, of the top players in the world, but. I didn't have a lot of forward lane, yeah. you know. I never had a flat left wrist. So, you know, all these different things. Uh, but, you know, as you learn and you get older and technology has taught us a lot. Well, I think the thing, and I, and I don't know how long you feel like you've had that flat left wrist. I'm guessing you're still working on it. But I'm guessing that's let it lend itself to more and more speed or, or, or keeping your speed where it's at. Contact, yeah. You know, you know, be able to compress the ball with the irons and stuff and so forth. And, you know, I still I, – I, I, I'm not great at the top of my my backswing's pretty good, and the last third of my backswing, for whatever reason, you know, my left wrist doesn't doesn't do as good as it should, and the club is at best is pretty neutral, which is okay, and a lot of people played from there. But it'd be nice to have it if it was a slightly on the shut side, and 
relative to the shaft, and then it's more rotational, mm-hmm. less weighting on the way down, if you will. So yeah, and you know, miss, less takeover, rollover, takeover on the way through. So you know, it's a process continue to work on, and uh, you know, ball striking's never been my forte. I mean, I could kind of get it around. Wedges were always good and understood how to control my trajectory on the wedges and stuff. And working from James and really knowing distance wedges and uh, pitching and chipping. But um, what's the? I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What's the number one thing you do to work on your distance wedges? Well, I have a system for one. Okay, uh, basically length of the backswing and continued ribbon rhythm, speed, if you will, to the follow through determines a distance. So I call what. My left arm goes to 7.30 on a clock. Maintain that rate, if you will, to the finish. I got a 9 o'clock and a 10.30. So I have three distances with my three wedges. So I have nine distances with my wedges as far as distance wedges. Like I know my 9 iron goes 140. I know what my 7.30 L wedge goes. I know what my 9 o'clock mm-hmm. pitch, sand wedge goes, pitching wedge. So I feel like I have more of an arsenal as I call them benchmarks. And then I finesse off of those benchmarks. Mm-hmm. So if my 9 o'clock sand wedge you know, goes 85 yards. Well, grip if I down. know I want to hit one to 80, I can grip down or I can take it just short of that. So there's a lot I can do. I can fade it a little bit mentality off of that to take some off or vice versa. If I need to hit it lower into the wind but still land it there, I can move it back, a little draw mentality. But I have these benchmarks, three distances with each of my wedges, and I just I practice them. I wear them out. I mean, I have an area at the back of my range at home we put in an AstroTurf area that I learned from Phil so it doesn't tear up the tee, and we have yardage markers out there at 20, 30, all the way to 120, and I work on these distance wedges. And then also I really work on my pitching at 20 and 30, 40 yards. Those are massive numbers for me, and people say, you actually use distances? I said, yeah, because 20 and 30, 40 yards, I need to get it in that 6 to 7-foot radius Correct. to where the percentage are to my favor to making the putt because it's all about conversion. Correct. So you can pitch it and chip it all you want, from 20 to 40 yards and you hit it 12 feet all day, the odds are against you of getting Mm -hmm. up and down. So it is so crucially important, in my opinion, as far as pitching, to be able to really convert is you have to get them inside of that six to seven foot range in terms of just the pure statistics of the putters on the PGA Tour. I love it. I love it. This is good stuff. I'm kind of loving it, geeking out. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, No, I think the man knows his golf swing. I'm going to see if Tom, Tom will agree with me. I think the worst tip in golf, you ready for it? Keep your eye on the ball. So so I see all these guys come through, and, and they've been told that their whole life. And, and I'm more than never, after studying Duval, what DJ's, uh, what DJ's rotation and head does through the golf shot. Woodland has a little bit of... Annika Sorenstrom. Annika. You know, a little bit of chest and head release. And what these guys... Well, am I going to hit it solid if my eye's not on the ball? And... It's just getting guys to untrain to release that chest and hit it. You know, if, if the eye stays on the ball, there's a really good chance the chest is going to slow down and then they're going to throw the Sully flip on it. Yeah. So. No, it's not very good. Keep your head down. Keep your eye on the ball. Not, none of them are really good. And when I watch you or watch you hit wedges or whatever, just the rotation and how swift you move through the zone. And one, is, of, the, one of the keys that James actually did in studying is to get people out of a little bit of the yips is right as you're delivering the club head to impact, you'll see that the head and the body move up a little bit. So yep. the more that they stay down, the more trouble they are. Mm-hmm. So uh, just something that he noticed and said, okay. So he's had some luck with getting some people that, quote, have the yips and stuff and chunks and thins 
to actually, as they're delivering the club, to try to get the club head to throw past their body a little bit, but at the same time feel that the head and stuff are actually releasing up. Yep. But you wouldn't tell that to anybody, but if someone's struggling by bending the knees and going mm-hmm. down and sagging into it, you know, you're going to, you know, your low point's going to be too far back. Well, and, and this is totally opposite from from what I do, right? When we talk about ball striking, because if you see me on video, my head my head's moving. So again, it it works fine. You're a good a, pitcher a and lobber and all it. the time. Yeah, love it because it, it, what I don't do is stay down, have stay the down. forward lean it's in all, the shaft. I mean, even almost to a point where the shoulder is going like this <laughs> with an iron up and yeah up like this. It's like I a shot up. It's like a free uh, consult. Two two well knowledge people. And this is unbelievable. You're gonna take all this knowledge and do but, nothing. But you know, with it. it's like my Christmas Someone present. for you. I mean, you know, a thought is is from the top of your swing. Can you feel like you move your left shoulder down and around and never have it go up? Yeah, uh, actually, and yeah, that, that was the now thought. I can't. Now it doesn't, but it feels like the left shoulder. If you put a dot there, right, and that left shoulder felt like it went down and continued to go down and go around your body, that would be amazing. Remember when we went to Dismal? Your thought was this. Remember right. trying to lean in right. this way. That's, That's good. What Tom was doing. Right. More of that. Now just take it down and continue to move it down into the left. Right. I mean, it'll eventually go up. Yeah. But yeah. After so, you strike the ball. Yeah, but it just <laughs> feel like this. The left shoulder is always trying to work down, but that helps you when someone's tilting and coming out, and then the club head throws. Tilting kills you. You know, if the left shoulder gets too high. It's a killer. Yeah. Because right. it's going to slow the body down. All right. Well, so. Um, should we hit him with some rapid fire? Yeah, What's yeah, in this we, thing? He's, got a, he's probably rapid. hungry. It's lunchtime. It's lunch, and he's given us he's given a lot us of so time much. today. He's the, he's the man. This is my favorite show. <laughs> might this be is, the last. This, this is, is the last show of the year. It's my favorite show. Wow. Uh, yeah. I thought Tom Kite was. Um, Tom was great. Um, here we go. <laughs> All right. You ready for Sheridan's unforked? Eating good and feeling, feeling good. good. <laughs> Tom Pernice, are you ready? Yes. All right. Here we go. Best ball striker you've ever played with. Driver, Greg Norman, and his day with a wooden driver. Uh, iron play, Tiger Woods. I, I got the next one. We're going to go uh, golf and then non-golf. Okay. okay? All right. Um, what's one thing that annoys you the most? Poorly raked sand traps. Oh, okay. That was kind of golf. I, thought, I was, was hoping kinda, he was, was kind of golf. I was hoping he was going to say guys looking for golf tips like you. Um, <laughs> I actually enjoy that. If you can help somebody in this game as hard as it is, it's very satisfying. Yeah, it's so satisfying. Okay, here we go. I know you pride yourself on your short game. Other than yourself, whose short game would you take to a Ryder Cup? Jason Day. Nice. Oh, yeah. Just got to keep them healthy. Got to keep them healthy. Right. All okay. Right, go, uh, go, Mr. Non-Golf. Who's your favorite superhero and why? Oh, boy. Uh, caught me off guard. George Brett. Always loved him. Whoa! Love his tenacity. Superhero? I love it. You just called George a superhero? Absolutely. You know, I had, oh, a, we great, got... I had a great brunch. I worked with George for 90 minutes yesterday. He was th- chewing tobacco, spitting it into my trash can, uh, but... The guy's, he's one of my superheroes, too. Loved him growing up. Got to be friends with him, members out at Wolf Creek and stuff, and now he's at Whisper Rock. And and the most unassuming, most normal, natural guy. Loves to sit down and have a Coors Light with you and just chat. I just thought he's fantastic. Two Coors Lights. He orders two. Well, he'll have more than one, so. (laughs) He's not afraid. All right. He starts with two. All right, here we go. go. You go, yeah. All right, I'm going. Um, Okay. Favorite hole at Augusta. Hmm, before the changes are after. Um, 
think. Come on, you got to say twelve. No, thirteen. Yeah, yeah. You like to hit that little slinger around the corner. Well, I you? just, I just like the fact that you you need to draw it off the tee, and then you like to hold it off a hook lie into the green. I mean, that, that's yeah. that's all kind of shots. Drawing yeah. it off the tee and trying to hold it, unless you're really going to draw it off that hook lie to the end of that green, that's something. Yeah, I'm not a huge. I, I mean, twelve's great, but I'm I'm never a fan of sh- shaved banks with a yellow line in front of it. Nah. Good because point. you know. I'm a big fan of red stakes everywhere because if it hit on the other bank and then rolled in, that you're it's totally different. A guy chunking it in the water, yeah, right. Because you're maybe two yards from hitting a great shot, yeah. And instead, you're dropping it back there in hell's country, trying to drop a wedge to hit it in there. But so another rules change that can be modified. Yes, yeah. Hopefully in our lifetime. Yeah. Hey, Wardo, here's here's one for you. Okay. Rapid fire question for you. Um, where would you go if you were invisible? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be a fly on the wall back in the day for our superhero in the locker room at uh, our superhero's 1985 World World Series triumph or party. That's a, that's a good answer. I would have liked to have been in Royal Melbourne with Tiger as a coach. would have been interesting, I think. Because yeah. I think we've seen a major chain in, change in Tiger's uh, personality mm-hmm. and his uh, reaching out to his friends to truly a lot of friends and he didn't used to have a lot of friends his mm-hmm. his father and his group kind of kept him pretty isolated mm-hmm. so i think we're really seeing a completely new and different and exciting tiger woods in terms of a friendship and a uh, involving in uh, american golf i think well, it's pretty fascinating we, we talked about this with joe scovran ricky's caddy um it, it was so cool as a, a fan to to watch tiger perform the way he did on the golf course and how something changed the second he put a blue jacket on, which meant now he's in leadership mode and he, you saw him turn into a leader in three minutes and it was, it was, you know, we've all seen how good he can play. I mean, and he had enough fire in him for whatever reason for that singles match. And I don't think what's his name had any intention of doing anything to fire him up, but it fired Tiger up. I mean, yep. I can't ever remember Tiger that focused on a singles match in a team competition ever. Right. Ever. Well, he made that putt. You knew he was going to center that right-to-left sweeper, and I he mean, takes the hat off and says, you know what, I'm ready to go be a captain. Yeah. So, But I think that would have been cool because it's a, it's a new role that really none of us have ever seen. I mean, in, yeah. in that type of leadership role. What's the one memory, when you think about Tiger, what's the one memory, first memory that pops in your head? Um, I actually got to play with Tiger right after he won the PGA at Medina, and we were paired together the first two days at the International. And it's the first and only time he played there, and we're playing at six or 7,000 feet. It's the first time he ever played, and I mean, he was striping it. Now, he was hitting it so straight and so far and didn't putt particularly well and was hitting shots that no one I mean he'd stand on the ninth hole which is OB on both OB left and water right and he'd be peeling this nice little cut driver up there and hitting wedge in I mean some of the best ball striking ever and didn't putt very well and then but I I just remembered that seeing it for two days and and it didn't turn to fruition he didn't play very good I think he made the cut and then missed the cut to play the last day there and I think he never went back and Jack Vickers tried forever to get him back, but never did, unfortunately. But uh, Jack Vickers, that's a KC name for Oh, yeah, you. the whole Vickers family. Yeah. And what they did in Castle Pines was one of our favorite events, and, uh, you know, we were sorry to, to lose that. But, um, you know, I, I remember that for whatever reason because he just came off of a win at, 
at the PGA and obviously played very well there at Medina. And we went then to Castle Pines, and it was it was impressive. Awesome, wow. awesome. What memories? What a, what a good so cool. show. What a good show, Wardo. I think we've got a, a, a new bestie for you. You guys can. Well, we've got a new. Have a golf blog together. We've got or a new something. threesome, and we got a caddy over here. Me, him, and George. Out at Did you see how he just relegated me to caddy? <laughs> Did there you see you this? Is how he treats All right. me. You get to be playing. At least you're included. Well, yeah. listen, hey, <laughs> well, included. So um, it, it, the um, last time I played against Warder, now granted, he had to give me several strokes. How, how'd that go down? Uh, the Dismal River. How'd it go you, down? You played well up at Dismal. I'm not talking about how I played. Who won? You beat my ass. I beat his ass. There you go. That handicap of yours. Travel. It's important. I, oh, I came into the tournament. It was a little, was a little high, you know. Well, uh, not a cheater. Not a yeah. cheater, you know. But uh, yeah, I smoked him. Well, you did I was smoke puffing. Him. You that, smoked me driver. Two eighteen, right down the middle is fantastic. That'll change. You get <laughs> change your angle of attack. Come from the inside, a little forward lean, and left wrist turned down. You'll be fine. This is we're going to look back it. on this day is the day when my golf game changed because Tom Pernice Jr. came in. Yeah. All right. right. We'll, we'll we'll do a quarterly check in on that. All right. That's we'll right. Check. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining no, us. Glad Happy to be able to be part. Thanks for what you guys do here for uh, golf in Kansas City. It's fun. Yeah, we're having I, a blast. That's with it. awesome. Would you come back and join us sometime? Anytime. Left to. All right. And why don't we join him in San Diego? Yeah, you can do that too. We go out to Tory. Let's play somewhere. I don't care. Well, I mean, maybe let's. Maybe I mean, the best place is the. To me, the number one club in the United States is Whisper Rock. Let's yeah, go. there's not a better. I I don't know that there's a better club to be a member at than Whisper Rock. Yeah, I can't we agree have, with you it more. It seems like half our guests are Whisper Rock guys. Well, <laughs> right? unbelievable. Two great golf courses, great people. Yeah, yeah it's and great, great caddy us. Hawker. There you go. Oh, we got our great, great caddies. The, the VP. We get the VP. All right. All right. Well, listen, hey, uh, what a great show. Um, we've got a lot of interesting guests coming up in, to, in 2020. We hope you enjoyed 2019 on behalf of the uh, the entire Golf Underground, which includes the Sullivan and Ward families. We thank you for listening. God bless. Be sure to check out our podcast. Go to Podbean Golf Underground, but only if you want to have fun and learn a little something about golf. So um, God bless. Golf Underground, ESPN Radio.